This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to AOA on this Friday, January 21st. I tell you what, I pulled up the weather map this morning, and there might be some reasons to celebrate for our listeners out, particularly across the West. Weather is starting to warm up. Cutback, Montana might get up to 40. Minot, North Dakota to 39. Rapid City at 42 degrees today. Ooh, those northern plains are coming out of the deep freeze. Sorry to my friends in the southern Corn Belt. St. Louis still looks like it's going to top out today at 28 but that cold air is on the move I tell you what that's got folks feeling a a little bit more excited out here in farm country we've also got some excitement developing in farm country thanks to a survey whose results were reported yesterday Jackie Holland from Farm Futures joins me this morning to discuss the Farm Futures planting survey Jackie thanks for taking the time to talk to us thank you for having me Mike So just yesterday, you were able to publish the results of your survey, Jackie, and it's driving some headlines because this is the first real hard data we've got, or at least intended data, about this next year's planting intentions. Run us through the results. Jackie, what were some of the numbers you saw on the survey this year? Yes, Mike. Our January 2022 survey found that farmers are feeling especially vulnerable amid all of these rising input costs this year. And that's gonna shift a lot of corn acres out of production in 2022. Our survey forecasts 90.4 million acres of corn will be planted and a record-breaking 92.4 million acres of soybeans will be planted this spring. That's gonna be the first time since 2018 that soybean acreage has surpassed that of corn. Uh, And it will be by a much larger margin than the only other time in history, uh, 2018. Yeah, 2018, it was what, two or 300,000 acres difference between the two, corn and soy? Yep, 300,000. And this year, our forecast suggests that that value um, is going to be closer to 1.2 million. Man, Jackie, just looking at some of these figures, that corn acreage dropping 2.9 million acres, beans coming up 5.1. This would be a pretty big shift across the uh, the heart of the growing country. Where do you see these acreage shifts happening? Where are we going to get 5 million more soybean acres? Do you know? You know, I think if anybody drove through the I-States this fall and saw all of the anhydrous being applied, you know, I think it's no secret that farmers in I-States are definitely going to plant, uh, definitely going to plant that $6 corn. Um, but in areas where it is more difficult, more costly to source some of these inputs, I think that's where we're going to see these acres top up um, because it's going to be it's just going to offer more profit potential so areas in the plains especially i think are going to be the key driver of some of these acreage shifts this year jackie the other number that that caught me by surprise at least was the winter wheat figure you had winter wheat plantings up one and a half million acres it's been a while since we started planting more wheat in this country we've been seeing those that acreage decline shoot since the the 40s tell us where do you see this wheat acreage growing is this all southern plains and if so is the drought going to be an impact on that figure yes i definitely see those acres popping up in the plains. Um, We saw in last week's USDA report, we saw uh, for winter wheat seedings that soft red winter wheat acres got the biggest bump. And to me, that definitely signals that farmers are really looking to capitalize on those very lucrative returns to double crop winter wheat and soybean rotations. Um, but that said, all of these forecasts are very contingent upon weather, of course, with 
we're with the drought that we've been seeing in the plains, you know, really since last summer, we haven't had a whole lot of relief from it. Um, producers in our survey, 93% uh, of them think that the higher input prices are going to lower 2022 profits. However, a good chunk of farmers, about 2%, are worried about those lower yields. And that reflects the concern about drought conditions in these areas and just how much potential this weather system has to upset 2022 acreage forecasts. And of course, that weather continues to change. Jackie, one of the challenges we always get with surveys is we're talking farmers' intentions three, four, five months out from now. Can you give us some details exactly. on the survey itself? When was it conducted? And uh, and how how accurate do you feel it is, at least as a snapshot of where farmers' minds are today? Yes. So we collected data from December 3rd to December 20th. So that was right in the peak time that fertilizer prices hit their highs. So farmers were feeling especially vulnerable to those decisions at that time. Uh, we conduct the survey through an email questionnaire. Um, and this time we got one of the most robust responses we've ever seen from producers across the country. Uh, we garnered 613 farmer responses, um, but I believe our margin of error landed lower than on our previous survey. So I think we were at about 2.5% uh, for that. Okay, that is impressive. And to see farmers getting active in uh, in participating in the survey is a good sign. Jackie, you are the grain markets analyst with Farm Futures. Of course, we've been talking about this acreage mix as it relates to new crop pricing for some time. If this survey were to verify, let's say we get that 92 million acres beans, 90 million acres corn, and, and 35 and change in the wheat, what do you see mm -hmm. that changing here in the new crop uh, market dynamics? So for corn, I don't think that it's going to significantly change supplies, supply dynamics very much. Um, I think if anything, it'll keep things at a very, it'll keep supplies at a very similar level to where they are right now. Uh, for soybeans, it's certainly going to increase supplies here in the U.S., but, you know, we've been operating at a tight supply level in the soybean market for so long now. Um, I think this crop could certainly help to ease some of those supplies. Um, we have had lower ex soybean exports to China this year. I'm very optimistic that with higher supplies and maybe more moderated prices, we can start to step back up those soybean volumes. The wheat market is the one I will be watching the closest though. Um, the, the 2021 crop shortfall in the Northern Plains is going to take more than just one year to get past. Even with the 1.9 bushel uh, crop next year, supplies are still going to tighten even more for the wheat market. All right. Lots of things to keep an eye on. Jackie Holland, Farm Futures Grain Market Analyst. Thanks for updating us on the survey results. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk changes to financial regulation with Paul Cupic after the break. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. 
Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best doctors. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in today to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, when Mike Adams started this program, one of the goals was to keep farmers and ranchers up to speed on things that can impact them, even if it comes from outside agriculture. And that's one of the things I want to try to continue as this show goes forward. And one of the things we all engage with, everybody in agriculture and, well, everybody in the country is we engage with the financial system. We engage with banks, credit unions, you name it. We're involved deeply in the financial system and how that system operates impacts our day-to-day -day lives. Well, there could be some changes coming to the overall financial ecosystem. Dr. Paul Kupiak is a researcher of the financial system. He's with the American Enterprise Institute, recently has written uh, an article that, that opened my eyes to some of the ways this is shifting. Dr. Kupiak, thanks for joining us today on the show. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. I want to ask you first about how these changes are happening. You mentioned in your article that climate change mitigation is how this administration could really reshape the financial sector. Can you talk to us about some of the risks that are developing in that space? Sure. Um, it's sort of a backdoor way that the administration can uh, push forward their climate change agenda with existing uh, authorities. So your audience may remember uh, the 2008 financial crisis and following that, uh, the uh, Dodd-Frank Act legislation that was passed by the Obama administration. And in the Dodd-Frank administration, uh, in the Dodd-Frank legislation, there's a, a feature, uh, a, a new regulatory agency or regulatory group that's been formed called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And the Financial Stability Oversight Council is essentially the collection of all the financial regulators, the Federal Reserve, the controller of the currency, the FDIC, the whole, the whole, the whole acronym list of, of financial regulators, and they all get together and meet uh, under, under the supervision of the Secretary of Treasury. And one of, one of the powers that the Financial Stability Oversight Council was given in the Dodd-Frank Act is to identify risks that would cause systemic harm to the financial system 
uh, or essentially risks that could cause uh, the failure of, of a whole of a very large firm or a whole group of firms that could endanger uh, the safety and soundness of the whole system. And so uh, last May, uh, the president signed an executive order directing the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC as it's known uh, in in financial circles, uh, to look into the issue of climate change and what climate change, the risks that climate change might pose to the financial sector. And in November, the uh, the FSOC put out a report that wasn't really covered uh, very much by mainstream media uh, because it's a it, it's a regulatory report full of you know 113 pages and but in it it says that uh, climate change poses a very significant systemic risk to the financial sector and this opens up the door for the regulators to uh, put on new regulations to uh, to protect the system from climate change risk. Uh, and maybe I'll stop there for a second and, and let you weigh in. Yeah, and it, it sounds like that of the climate change risk that the FSOC identified, there are two different branches, right? There's the extreme weather risk, which you know we can think about uh, climate change potentially causing more hurricanes, et cetera, et cetera, and how that could impact the financial system. But Paul, there's also transitional risk. And in your article, it was the transitional risk arm that really stuck out to me. Can you tell us what transitional risk is and how these regulators might be using it to shape investment, investing decisions going forward? Yeah, the the the, the weather related events uh, financial institutions have dealt with for centuries basically, and they're they're pretty good at it. Uh, they don't, weather weather doesn't cause financial firms to fail. It can cause some losses. It can actually generate some profits. But the the real pay dirt for people hoping to stop uh, activities related to uh, anything that uh, causes greenhouse gas emissions are transitional risks. And transitional risks are the risk that some point in the future, there's going to be an event that causes consumers to realize that, to think that uh, the world, the climate, the world's about to end because of a climate catastrophe. And government will put in regulations to immediately prohibit uh, activities that, uh, that create greenhouse gases that cause global warming. Consumers will change their behavior. And a whole slew of investments will suddenly be worth far less, and this will endanger the safety and solvency of all the firms in the financial system. And these hypothetical uh, fictional scenarios, I mean, there's no, there's, we, these are things that we're imagining might happen somewhere in the distant future. These are, these are what's uh, driving this idea that um, climate change risks could be a systemic risk to the financial sector, and we might need additional regulations, things like Higher, higher capital requirements on agricultural loans that are related to any, any activity that creates greenhouse gases. And, you know, of course, the climate change activists are, uh, you know, they're against, you know, things like beef and, 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 and bacon and all kinds of things like that because they say they generate methane and other greenhouse gases. So all these things could feed back and, you know, to all kinds of financial uh, products making loans much more expensive, uh, make restricting what you could invest in in your 401ks, uh, and, and the, the the problem here is the av- the, the avenue exists in, ex- in the existing law for for uh, the administration to do it, and they're putting the people so- in place that that want to do it. So let's talk about how this would happen. What sort of rules and regulations could they promulgate under Dodd-Frank that would really change the way the investment flows in this country, particularly to those sectors that are are, are manufacturing, are production, are extractive, that do generate you know greenhouse gases? Well, first of all, they could argue that the risks require banks, this climate, elevated climate risk, require banks to hold a lot more capital for any loan that they make to any firm or activity that generates greenhouse gases. So immediately, banks would find those loans uh, less profitable. Uh, they would either quit making them entirely or charge much more to make them. Uh, they could put things like uh, limits on uh, port- an investment uh, companies. If an, if, if an investment firm manages a portfolio, like say a Vanguard has a mutual fund, they could put limits on the, green, the total greenhouse gases 
that are produced by the things that the fund invests in. So the SEC in a, is already working on rules where every every issuer of of of, of equities or bonds has to uh, put out uh, standardized measures of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with their activity. So there are lots of these rules going in place that they seem like they're disconnected, but actually um, they're all kind of connected to this whole idea that we can we can we can cut down on uh, the the industries that produce greenhouse gases using the financial sector and existing laws. And it's it's not really hypothetical for for listeners to this show. Last Friday, we talked to Dr. Ellen Wald, and they've already seen a slowdown in investments in the crude oil refining and pumping space because companies are a little skittish about how these new laws might come down in the future. Paul, these things are developing. They're happening really behind closed doors, granted with occasional reports. How can our listeners, A, keep up to date on what's happening in terms of financial regulation, and B, when one of these things comes up that, whoa, raises some red flags, how can the general public address these issues with the regulators? Well, first somebody has to flag them, and uh, they're, they're not always forthcoming in, in what the real plan is. And there are, there are people in various think tanks and other places which would try to you know connect the dots and put the pieces together, and, and we write opinion pieces that warn people. And, and folks like me try to try to warn people in Congress about these kinds of issues and what to look out for. Um, that's really my full-time job, look, looking out for issues like this and trying to flag them for the public at large. Uh, I don't, you know, keep your eyes open so you've, because this, this kind of you've stuff done is it. happening. We're alert, Paul. What do we do next? How can we do something about this? I make noises, tell your congressmen and senators that this is not not what you want um this is this is this is i yeah i'm yeah. So it's, it's uh, honestly, it's, it's reach out. It's that grassroots reaching out, talking to our Congress people. Uh, Paul, when would these rules be promulgated? Do you expect to see more coming out this year? Well, the SEC has, uh, the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, has made this a priority. And he said they were coming out by the turn of the year, but they haven't come out yet for securities. These are These would be disclosure rules for uh, issuers, for securities issuers, that people subject to the Securities Exchange Commission rules. The banking sector, uh, they've met, the FSOC has now identified this as a risk, so the, the banking regulators would have to get together and figure out how to uh, measure the uh, potential for okay. transitional risk. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Paul Kupiak from AEI, thank you for joining us. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system because I know they've got my back. Their spray early weed control guarantee helps me get the most out of early season applications. If I experience less than commercially acceptable performance, I'm eligible for up to $18 per acre on additional applications. That's a system I can depend on. The Roundup Ready Extend Crop System. See program details at SprayEarlyGuarantee.com. Guarantee is subject to program restrictions. Always follow pesticide label directions. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we got some private export sales reported this morning. We got a corn sale to unknown destinations of 247,800 metric tons for this 21-22 marketing year. And soybean sales of 132,000 metric tons to China for this 21-22 marketing year. Both reported this morning, and that could be part of those ceremonial um, buys that China is supposedly going to be making here to uh, appease the U.S. administration after China failed to meet the phase one trade deal commitments. So that's something we're going to be watching closely there. 
Now, grain markets are fairly mixed with wheat and corn turning higher and bean oil remaining higher. Rotation of money's generally been good to the commodities this week, but traders begin to get nervous when the VIX approaches 30 as it did earlier today. A fear index of 30 traditionally signals a movement of money to the sideline and or to safe haven investments. And that's something we're going to watch very closely. Quarter wheat traders, along with energy traders, remain very cognizant of the risk to global supplies if a military conflict disrupts trade coming from the region of Ukraine and Russia. We're watching that Black Sea region very, very closely as there's a lot of geopolitical risks hanging in the balance there. Otherwise, uh, looking across the grains and livestock sector, fairly quiet news day, not a whole lot to move the markets. Right now, March corn up four and three quarters, six fifteen to three quarters. March soybeans down three, fourteen twenty-two at three quarters. March bean meal down five sixty a ton, three ninety-five twenty. March bean oil up eighty-five point sixty-three seventy-three. March Chicago wheat down three quarters, seven eighty-nine and a half. March Kansas City wheat up five and a quarter, eight oh one at three quarters. March spring wheat up one at three quarters, nine forty-six and a half. February lean hogs up thirty-seven eighty-five thirty. February live kettle down twelve one thirty-eight twenty. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed at this time. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, welcome back to AOA. Lots of things happening in the world of finance. Lots of things happening, of course, in the world of agriculture. And lots of things happening in the world of supply chain management. I had the chance recently to hear Professor Bobby Martins. He's a professor at Iowa State, talks a lot about the supply chain. He was in the business school for 15 years. Now he's in the College of Ag. Bobby, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today and to share a little more insight into how the supply chains work globally. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the call. Well, Bobby, one of the first things you addressed when I heard you speak was the the question, are supply chains broken? And your answer is, is no. Give us a little insight into what you're thinking here about the current state of supply chains in the country. Yeah, you know, our supply chains were, for the most part, designed to be very efficient. We came through a long period of relative stable trade, and our supply chains are efficient. What our supply chains are, though, is they're very full. Consumer demand for durables is very high, and these supply chains are overwhelmed. So they're not broken. They're doing what they're designed to do. They're just very, very full, and we're seeing the repercussions of that. And the fact that they are so full, Bobby, is what's staggering. Would you mind taking a little bit of time to tell us about the volumes of trade that are being shoved through the current supply chains? Yeah, the amount of durables coming in, particularly from Asia, mental shift in demand. It's it's not it's not a tweak of demand. It is very much a shift in demand. So consumers have went from spending money on services, and they started really spending money on durables during the pandemic. And the amount of durables coming through has a magnitude of two times what we would expect, at least. Um, from a sheer volume coming through. So our ports are moving product and they're moving a great deal of product through the ports more than we would expect them to have moved through the ports any time in the past. So that magnitude is, is just a great deal of volume that then has to be distributed through the country, you know, through our rail systems, with our truck systems. 
it's uh it's it's a large large amount of product moving it it is it's a huge amount of product moving you, know, you look at those charts of the amount of additional goods purchases that americans have made since the start of the pandemic and it's profound as you look at the current uh, pinches in the supply chains bobby where do you see this having the the most impact obviously ocean freight's been the most discussed are there other areas we should be looking at Domestically, we have some real challenges with truck transportation right now. Our drivers are actually driving. There's a study done that we're actually driving six and a half of our 11 hours available on a given day, according to Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration hours of service regulations. That's a lot of hours being left on the table where they're not actually moving freight. There's a lot of reasons for that. Dwell time. A trucker shows up and the product's not ready to go because somewhere along the line in the supply chain, there wasn't a product available. And availability issues that we're seeing because of the backlogs are causing that drive time to be even less than it was. Bobby, so we've got... We talk Sorry, we've got a lot of listeners who are truckers and probably understand this issue intuitively. But for folks who aren't, give us the breakdown. Why does that six and a half out of 11 hours matter? Yeah, that matters a great deal to those in the trucking industry because most over-the-road truckers are paid on a per-mile basis. They're only paid if they're actually hauling something. And that per-mile basis does not include deadheading or running empty when they don't have a load to reposition themselves to get another load. So they're only driving that truck six and a half hours a day. They're only being paid for those miles that they're covering during that six and a half hours. So if a driver is able to utilize their time and get nine, 10 hours of driving time a day, they're making good money. But all of a sudden, they can be very frustrated when they're showing up and having to wait eight hours to be loaded because they're sitting there waiting and not being paid for their right. time in and many cases. They're on the clock. Illegally, they can only drive that 11 out of 24 hours. So if you spend eight of it waiting, you get three on the road, and then you got to pull over and sit again, right? And they're literally on the clock because electronic log devices are monitoring what goes on for safety purposes. And all of those things are good. The hours of service are important to have some limits on that to be able to think about safety. The electronic log devices can actually be good to be able to understand what drivers are doing, where their time is going, and keeping drivers true to what's happening. Uh, and, you know, there's a culture of safety that is very important to the truck transportation world. Most trucking companies are very, very safe. Most drivers are trained very well. But the reality is, is that when you just sit there and wait, that makes creates frustration in the trucking industry. And it means drivers are getting paid less, therefore not as likely to stay working for that company. Right. And it perpetuates driver turnover and driver frustration. And that driver turnover, you know, Bobby, I hear quotes all the time. We need 50. We need 60,000 truck drivers. We are very short here in this industry. But it might just be because we're, we're, we're not utilizing the good truckers we have most efficiently, it sounds like. Yeah, so that's a big issue. And it's, it's a challenging issue because if we could just increase the number of hours each driver is driving by 20 minutes per day. This is drive time, not service time. That would eliminate what we say as a 50,000 driver shortage is um, our calculations that we did. Wait, now, wait, Bobby, you said if every driver was driving 20 minutes more, literally on the road driving, that would make yes. up for the 50,000 driver shortfall? Yes, staggering numbers. Wow. Man. That's that not an easy 20 minutes to find. Now, 20 minutes is 20 minutes, and it doesn't seem like that much. But to truly do that is challenging because load times, unload times, dwell times, we would have to get all of our shippers and our consignees, those manufacturing locations that you're picking up, those delivery points, on board with making this happen. Some amount of time has to be out there, though, to be able to gain back into the system to make it more efficient. I always go back and I think, would I rather have the trucks that are on the road running an extra 20 minutes a day, or would I really rather rather have 50,000 more trucks on the road. Well, I certainly wouldn't want 50,000 more trucks on the roads that I drive. I would much rather have our drivers driving 20 more minutes a day. So I think that's a great opportunity to be able to look for, look for efficiency to be able to create that capacity in the industry 
rather than looking for more drivers. But as you mentioned, the key is getting all of those suppliers, all of the shippers on the same page with the logistics at the loadouts and at the drop-offs to be able to grab things and move them quickly. And Bobby, one of the other things I've heard you discuss is the, the challenge that develops when you get supplier waterfalls, right? Big manufacturer has a bunch of suppliers. They have a bunch of suppliers. Can, can you talk to us about how that works itself up the supply chain? Yeah, not not really relates to the idea of disruption. So if you think of a manufacturing company that may have a, a thousand different suppliers, and, and that's not a lot of suppliers. Many manufacturing companies can have a thousand different suppliers. And that would be their first tier supplier. Most manufacturers only have visibility into their first tier suppliers. After that, visibility becomes something that is less than desirable. They don't have great visibility. But let's say every one of those first tier suppliers has 10 of their own first tier suppliers, which are second tier suppliers to the manufacturing firm. There you're at 10,000 suppliers. Each one of those second tier suppliers has 10 suppliers. There you're at 100,000 suppliers. So this becomes really big, really fast. The supply chains get really large. And 10 is a small number of suppliers. They certainly have 10. So this is a conservative idea of how we really increase the number of second, third, fourth tier suppliers as we go through the supply chain. So this simple supply chain that may seem simple at 1,000, right? 1,000 is already large gets really, really big when you think about second, third tier suppliers. And it's not surprising that there's going to be a disruption given all the direction disruptions that we have seen someplace throughout that system. And especially when we incorporate international suppliers into the chain, which of course in agriculture, we are global. Bobby, do you see things starting to moderate this year? Are we adjusting to a new change in supply line dynamics? Yeah, I think this year, given the last wave of the coronavirus that has come through, um, I think that fourth quarter is our best case scenario for really coming back to a new equilibrium in these markets, a, a new status in these markets that we can feel comfortable with. Um, the backlog alone will take us until then. I think the question then becomes is, are we going to go back to some type of status quo that we had pre-COVID? Or are we going to come to some kind of a new equilibrium where we really think about our supply chains different and we think about creating resilient supply chains that are able to absorb more of these kinds of disruptions that we have seen? Or will we go back to our status quo kinds of supply chains that are mostly built to be efficient and sometimes we forget about this idea of risk and resilience yeah bobby before we let you go of course a lot of growers tuned in right now are concerned about availability of fertilizer and crop inputs as you look out to this spring do you see large-scale disruptions in getting fertilizer and inputs to farmers large scale is not a word that i would currently use now we could see more disruption happening i do see that there will be some availability challenges mostly due to domestic transportation challenges of getting product to the farmers at the right time. The product will likely be in place someplace for fertilizer, but actually getting it to the farmers at the right time could be challenging. Thus, there's some people not doing forward contracts. Okay, a lot as of disruptions as... could be ahead. Bobby Martins, he's a professor at Iowa State University. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half 
don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. I choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system because I know they've got my back. Their spray early weed control guarantee helps me get the most out of early season applications. If I experience less than commercially acceptable performance, I'm eligible for up to $18 per acre on additional applications. That's a system I can depend on. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system. See program details at sprayearlyguarantee.com. Guarantee is subject to program restrictions. Always follow pesticide label directions. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Well, folks, thanks for tuning in today. You know, that last segment talking to Bobby Martins about the supply chain got me thinking about some of the other legs of the supply chain, notably river freight and barge traffic. This past year, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was passed in both the House and the Senate. That unrolled some money for lock and dam repairs. Joining me for this final segment is Paul Rohde. He's a vice president with the Waterways Council. And we have finally got an update from the Army Corps of Engineers about the locks and dams they're going to be able to repair first with the money from the infrastructure bill. Paul, bring us up to speed. What are the priority projects that Army Corps of Engineers unveiled? Hey, Mike. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Well, the priority projects are, number one, um, the ongoing construction that had been uh, uh, already started. So that's two on the Tennessee River, Kentucky Lock and Montgomery Lock. And then there's a a, a collaborative effort that the Army Corps of Engineers and the towing industry have been doing for a decade now to prioritize the already authorized locks. And so they've got three tiers, uh, essentially. And so after the ongoing construction, the next is getting into tier one. Uh, and, and part of that is uh, Lock and Dam 25 on the Mississippi River at Wingfield, Missouri, there in Lincoln County. And that is uh, very significant. It is a, a new construction start, which uh, the Corps hasn't seen in quite a while. Uh, and so it's new construction. Paul, what are they going to be building there at Lock and Dam 25? Yeah, so they'll be putting in a new chamber uh, that's 1,200 feet in length, which is the size of, of modern tows. A tow is 15 barges pushed by a single tow boat. And that 1,200-foot chamber will allow the tow to pass through from one, what they call pool, one side of the, of the dam to the other side without having to, to break those barges uh, into two separate uh, tows, essentially. Right now, 25 has a single 600-foot chamber built in, well, it opened in 1939. And so what we've had to, to do on, on most of these locks and dams on the Mississippi and Illinois rivers uh, is to break those toes in half and, and transit them uh, separately. You know, this is a two, three-hour endeavor versus going through in a single um, pass is a you know a 30-minute uh, endeavor. So it, it, it is quite significant with regards to the transportation savings, the time, and safety. You know, deckhands. This is a very unsafe working environment uh, because it, breaking those toes in half are done by hand, and so um, it's, a, it's a significant upgrade. That is fantastic. And I, I saw, I mean, the dollar figures being rolled out are, are substantial. That lock and dam number 25, they got $732 million funded to completion, you know, at least with the current budget. Paul, give us a timeline. How long is this going to take? And should we expect disruptions while construction is underway to the existing river traffic? Yeah, so the infrastructure bill is meant to have a five-year uh, window, and I think the Corps is going to try their best to uh, to make that happen. Um, I would expect a contract to be let out at some point this year, and probably by early next year we'll see uh, the construction start. Um, I, I don't know about the traffic disruptions. What they try to do when they do major maintenance or, or even a rehabilitation of a lock is uh, do it in the winter, which isn't optimal for construction uh, with the weather, but that's uh, when you have the least disruption of existing river traffic. Uh, there will still be some uh, disruptions. Uh, this new chamber will be built on the in, in the water side, so they'll have to carved into the dam, as, as, it, as it were, um, versus constructing it on the land side. Um, so yes, there will be some disruptions, but as we've seen on the Illinois River uh, a couple of years ago, they had some major maintenance and LaGrange Lock uh, went through a major rehabilitation. Uh, the industry is, is really good at working with the Corps of Engineers to try to minimize the disruptions. And so you get your towboats, you get your barges on the other side of the lock, uh, for the duration of, of a, a, a permanent, not permanent, uh, total closure, or what they could do is um, have a daytime pass only, uh, or perhaps instead of 15 barges, you'd be able to, to move half of that while the construction's ongoing. There's various 
conditions that, that uh, dictate what the disruptions might be. But like I said, the industry is really good at, at uh, collaborating with the core to try to minimize the economic impact of those closures. Well, that's good to hear. Paul, I wanted to get your thoughts. There was a note on the press release, and it mentioned that there might be or there will be a new edition of a fish passage at Lock and Dam number 22, and that was funded for $100 million. This is a, a, a way for fish to get upstream. Paul, I, for $50 million, I'll stand there with a net and carry these fish uh, over the river. Tell us what this construction is, and why is it $100 million? Yeah, so, well, first, it's, it's not quite $100 million. It's $97.1 million. Uh, you're, you're right. That is a lot of money. Um, and part of, you know, this Lock 25 construction, it's a program, a larger program. There's, so, there's seven locks that are in play here for construction, but it's called the Navigation and Ecosystem Sustainability Program. And it's a, a very comprehensive river management program that does uh, look after the, the best for riverine and riparian habitat through ecosystem restorations. And one of those is allowing access for fish to go upriver, which when they built the dams and the locks back in the 1930s, they created these series of pools. And so fish were really um, much more constrained than they were prior to uh, the lock and dam construction there in the 1930s. So the thought process is if you increase access to upriver habitat for fish, it should result in an increase in the size and also the, you know, the, the distribution with the increased access of native migratory fish populations. And one of the problems we've had with invasives is our native fish aren't able to grow and get big enough to uh, have a fair shot against uh, these yeah. Asian carp. So this um, will be built into the dam at 22 All right. uh, there at Saberton, Missouri. Paul, we got to let you go. Thanks for bringing us up to speed. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's, and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves, if you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone.